Let's pray together. Once more we come with open ears, we pray, and open hearts, we ask. As we think about your word, we give you thanks for the way in which it leads and directs us, shapes and refines us. We ask that we might know these things today as we explore it further. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in introducing my message on the first part of chapter 10 of 1 Kings, I asked you to imagine a very large, very well-lit stage on the top of a mountain. And in the centre of that stage, a throne and bright lights upon that throne. And on that throne is seated King Solomon. I ask you to do that because all through these chapters on his life, I think that the end of chapter 8 was the mountain peak and chapters 9 and chapters 10 are the plateau upon which Solomon is sitting and enjoying the limelight and the glory, such as the visit of the Queen of Sheba in the last part of chapter 10, which you saw last week. All before his humpty-dumpty-like terrible fall from which Solomon will not recover. This is the peak and the rule This is the peak of his rule and his reign. Nothing more is being added to his achievements except to say that his kingdom is growing and growing in wealth and in splendour. And yet, as the saying goes, the best of men are men at best. In other words, there is nothing of value here upon which we might say, oh, but look at this influence that he's having in the name of the Lord. Or look at these people who are happy and prospering under his rule. His best was still but man at best. Even though this marks the high point of his wealth and his influence. And while the text does give us all these details of the staggering wealth of Solomon's kingdom and his effect on the surrounding nations, and while there is much that is good and gives glory to God, it remains true that chapter 11 is just around the corner. And that chapter will describe for us the rapid descent of Solomon from these dizzying heights which means there must be some signs, even small signs, that betray the proposed course of trajectory. There must be cracks appearing in order for the fall to be so bad. And so this chapter which highlights the best of Solomon's reign for us also has some of these small signs of cracks appearing that I hope to point out for you along the way. Two things this morning. First, in verses 14 to 25, we note, again, Solomon's worldly wealth. If a word count 
determines what a portion of text is about, then this section is clearly about gold because it wins hands down. Gold. The word gold occurs ten times in nine verses. It even opens with the weight of the gold that Solomon received in one year, which amounted to 666 talents, which equates to 23 metric tonnes, 23,000 kilograms of gold. With the gold price as it is currently now, Australia, $80,000 per kilo, well, you do the maths. It comes out at a lot of money, more than my calculator could handle. I think the figure was $2 million billion. And as if that's not enough. Verse 15 reminds us that this amount was on top of other revenue that Solomon received from explorers, merchants and other rulers like the Queen of Sheba who just happened to hand him a tidy little sum. Uh, gold is seen in, in also in verses 16 to 17 that describes the shields that would most likely be used in official ceremonies. There were 200 full body length shields with six and a half kilograms of beaten gold covering them at today's price themselves being half a million dollars. Each followed by some smaller shields with 1.8 kilograms of gold beaten thin to cover them at a bargain price of $150,000. And if that doesn't impress you, we are told about Solomon's throne in verses 18 to 20. It's a throne described as a great throne of ivory and gold covering like the like of which no king has ever had before. Some commentators suggest that instead of thinking of full and looming elephant tusks, rather think of panels of ivory with engravings of flowers and fruit covered in gold, interspersed with gold. This throne had six steps leading up to it, a calf's head engraved on the back of the throne and two lions of gold on each of the steps. Verse 21 tells us that Solomon's dinner service was all gold. And the gold was so abundant that silver lost its value completely. Verse 22 adds the picture, explaining that every three years the returning traders and merchants on ships from faraway places brought in more wealth, including novelty items such as pets for Solomon's Zoo and, of course, more gold. Now I have some concerns, as should you. But before we get to those concerns, let's note the positive things before we list the concerns. For a start, it must be understood that Solomon did not originally seek wealth, but had been promised wealth by God when he asked for wisdom. We read that way back in chapter 3, that God said in these terms, I will give you what you have not asked for both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. It's very clear that it was God who brought this great blessing to Israel and to its king. 
then we should remember that God's goal of demonstrating his own glory through this king and his people was at least being accomplished in part. We've seen the visit of the Queen of Sheba and here still others mentioned who sought out Solomon and as a result brought him gifts so that the writer says the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. Then let's also note that Israel itself, life in Israel would have been pretty much enriched. Life under this very rich king would I would expect to be very much tax-free, unlike Victoria, although I doubt that was the case given that when his son Rehoboam became king, he increased the taxes, much to the people's dissent and disgust. Those are the positives. But think about the negatives. You don't have to look much further than the warning God gave to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, when speaking about the king that one day God would provide his people, God said only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and what? Gold. And so suddenly all this wealth is not so good, is it? And we will see that the lure of horses, but even stronger, the lure of wives and the power of money will be his undoing and become idols, powerful idols that cause him to lose his way. We note too that the warning from God does say excessive gold. And I don't know about you, but I think that Solomon has got excessive gold. Even though gold is in and of itself a neutral thing, and it's well used in the construction of the temple to create a picture of God's heavenly glory, even neutral things, even good things, can become a terrible snare. And it seems that his desire for more and more gold ultimately consumed him. One wonders how he would have done in Bendigo's gold fields and if the desire for gold would have given him gold fever. But then again, having so much gold, he would have been content with not having to dig for it, would he? Now we read this morning from Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6, especially verses 6 to 10 are so apt. Paul is addressing the problem of those using religion to get gain and here he puts the things of the world into perspective, this perspective we need if we're to avoid the sin of Solomon. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kind of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What's better than gold? Godliness is better than gold. We get more in godliness in anything that money can buy, anything that gold can buy you. Godliness, not gold, makes for the best happiness. Godliness is able to suffer loss and still be content, but covetousness cannot. And verse 7 of Paul's words teaches us that we had nothing when we came into this life and we'll leave it and we'll take nothing with us. And so we cannot complain of being robbed or of God not fulfilling his debts to us. We own nothing, we own nothing, but all things are the Lord's. And all that we have in between is a gift from him. It's a gift of grace. Food and clothing and shelter, says Paul, they're the basics we need to survive. He's not denying the need to own property or buy a car, but he's making a statement to support his premise. The godly who knows what lies ahead of them and who know that they eventually will end up with nothing can be content if their daily needs are provided for. Not their every want, not their every greed. And so verse 9 teaches us that what happens to those who do not learn this contentment is that they fall for the opposite, for covetousness. Note that Paul does not say those who are rich, but those who desire to be rich. It's not money itself that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Solomon, of course, was rich providentially. As God gave him riches he did not ask for. But Solomon got carried away with it. Solomon began to amass wealth more and more excessive gold. There's a profound lesson here. It seems that Solomon did not struggle with wealth as a younger man, but as an older man. We might be aware of certain sins that we are prone to, but let down our guard towards others, thinking we don't suffer from those weaknesses or those temptations. Here we see that we are prone to all sorts of sins. The reason for this is because soft pleasures harden the heart. We're so affected as sinners that even our blessings can become snares. If even the gift of the law of God can be a tool that our sinful hearts use to envisage sin, like coveting your neighbour's stuff, then the blessings of God, which are meant as a token of his bounty, can become golden handcuffs if we do not guard our hearts from the lure of wealth. And Paul lists the worst possible consequence of the lure of wealth telling us that some have wandered from the faith because of it. You can think of Judas, a hand-picked disciple of Jesus, 
who saw the miracles, who heard the teaching, and yet because of his love of money, sold him out. You could refer to Demas, who we remember every week in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Solomon, another casualty of pursuing wealth and the love of money, which is a terrible trap. Secondly, then, the text points us to Solomon's military might in verses 26 to 29. Uh, These verses in the last part of the chapter still focused upon Solomon's wealth, but in particular his horses and chariots. In verse 26, we are told that Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Chariots and horses are, of course, the modern-day equivalent of bushmasters and helicopters. This is not a record of the infantry, that is, men with swords, but the more powerful armaments. No doubt Israel needed an army, but the statistics we're given here indicate a significant army, perhaps far bigger than what the king ever needed. It appears that Solomon was no longer practising the faith of his father, David, who told us, Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now we read all this in the context of God telling his people that he would be their protector and he would fight for them. He promised if they were obedient, they would know the blessings of his protection. But here's the sign of Solomon trusting in something else instead of the Lord. Here he is building a vast and great army because he's moved away from trusting the Lord to depend upon the arm of flesh. And remember, he doesn't have any enemies this time. He's at peace with all the nations around him. And with regard to all these horses, weren't we warned by God in that reading from Deuteronomy 17 that he should never go back and trade with Egypt and that he should not gather to himself too many horses just as he ought not garner for himself excessive gold? That's what we read. But what we see here, other than Solomon's import of horses from Egypt and also the chariots from there, 600 shekels of silver for a chariot, 150 shekels of silver for a horse, each horse having a one-horsepower motor, of course. And why this trading with Egypt? Well, he was married to Pharaoh's daughter, wasn't he? And no doubt as a result of this marriage alliance, he was able to secure the horses cheaper and sell them cheaper than others and so build himself a little monopoly on horses and chariot trade. In other words, this man of peace becomes an arms dealer in modern day terms. But there is an irony that we ought not miss Uh, Later in chapter 14, when his son Rehoboam is on the throne, Shishak, uh, king of Egypt, 
came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. In fact, he took away everything. He took away all the shields of gold that Solomon made. So this nation, Egypt, with whom Solomon has so been busy trading, ended up attacking Judah, as did Syria, a nation that Solomon sold his horses and chariots too. So much for alliances. And while we might say there is political nous in establishing trade relations all around him and securing pre- the peace that was needed on his borders, sadly the signs of spiritual digression and disobedience were becoming evident. The cracks are growing. The focus is shifting. Jesus once said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? And the answers to those two questions are nothing and nothing. It's a dead end of the most tragic proportions to live for stuff, to have a monopoly on most of the wealth of the world if all that what you end up with consumes you to the point where in the end you have absolutely nothing worthwhile. One of the tragedies of the day today is parents who say, We gave everything we could to our children so that they could live. But we didn't pass down anything to live for. Whether or not Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes is not a topic I'm going to argue, but just say that if he didn't, he should have read it. When our son Andrew was at university, he wrote some music to some lyrics some friends of his put together to summarise the book of Ecclesiastes. The two verses, the first two verses are these. What life is this beneath the sun? What sorrows fill it one by one? What pain, what grief, what agony... Can any from this strife be free? When you have gone and long been dead, will many care? Will tears be shed? Will all your work and toil be rewarded in eternity? Why do you strive? Why do you run? Men soon forget the good you've done. It lies forgotten like a dream. It fades away and is not seen. This is not just. This is not fair. But that is life when God's not there. Like chasing wind, like beating air. Dear friend, it's vanity. Beware. What to conclude? I think the point is made by our Saviour who put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Perhaps Jesus had in mind Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which Solomon may have written, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Both these texts tell us that whatever you set your heart on will direct your course of the rest of your life. Whatever you set your heart on, your paths, your hands, your words, your thoughts, your deeds will all be given to what you have given your heart to. If your heart is set on the majesty of Christ, the glory of his name, the beauty of his holiness, the horror of sin and the sufficiency of God's daily grace then the lures of temptation will pass you by. But if your heart is set, as Paul said, on riches, on this life, then there's a trap awaiting you. And Solomon can't see this trap. Watch out, therefore, lest you fall as Solomon will. And his fall will prove that even the greatest wisdom in the world is no temptation, sorry, no defence against temptation if your heart is set on earthly things and not things above. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for these things that are set out for us in your word, that we need to guard our hearts, that we need to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. We are earthly creatures and we cannot help but be attracted to and attached to the things of the world when you say to us to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's a matter we'll come back to again and again as we follow Solomon's demise. What our heart is pointing to Please grant us hearts that love you and do not love money nor the glory that it brings. Please awaken us to the snare of many things that await us in the world around us that are seeking to trip us up and catch us. Grant that we might love you with all our hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen.